Good morning, church. Welcome to uh, the church that meets here in ARPC at Adam. We are doing a series from the Gospel of John, and today we will be looking at what was uh, sung a while ago, John chapter 4, and we will be looking at uh, Jesus' conversation with the uh, woman at the well in Samaria. So we have a quite a number of DGs uh, that meet weekly all around the city um, to study, to pray, and to fellowship. And uh, mine uh, meets on Fridays, and we meet at the Bishan area. And so guess what was our topic of conversation last Friday evening? No, it's not the cows of Bashan, but it's the crows of Bishan. You know, the crows who were in the news and in social media uh, for attacking residents and pedestrians. And so our conversation uh, revolved around what angered the crows, what triggered them to attack people, and how smart they are to have facial recognition capabilities, and many more. And so what's the best way to evade getting attacked? Well, they say it is to wear a cap or use an umbrella, although it's not raining, or simply just to avoid certain routes, just to avoid areas where the birds gather because they could be protecting their young or perhaps protecting some injured bird. In short, take an alternative road and avoid the crows of Bishan. Now, Jesus and his disciples were en route to Galilee from Judea. Now, in those days, if they had a Jewish Google map, uh, the app would suggest a few possible routes. And then there's one that's highlighted in orange. It is the shortest route. It is orange because it's popular and most practical. And so why Jesus, why was Jesus described to have had to take this short route. Well, maybe uh, the shortest route, the shortest yet most practical route, was generally avoided by religious Jews. Now, you see, when the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, much of the population uh, was exiled. And so, and so those who remained, they somehow faced a population problem. And so the Assyrians, they migrated people from various parts of her empire to the northern kingdom. And these people intermarried with the people in Samaria, resulting to a race called the Samaritans, a class of people which the Jews despised. And then historical records would tell us that, that when the southern kingdom returned from the Babylonian exile to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans, they offered to chip in labor, but their offer was rejected. And so relations between the Jews and the Samaritans went from bad to worse. And worse, the Samaritans even built their own temple on Mount Gerizim to the ire of the Jews. And then there were incidents of attacks against each other's temples. One Jewish king was reported to have destroyed the Samaritan temple, and then more than 100 years later, the Samaritans would defile the Jerusalem temple. And so hostile relations between Jews and Samaritans have always been historical. And so a religious Jew likely might rather take the longer distance 
then cut through Samaria to get to Galilee. But Jesus, we are told, had to take this route. For one, it's shorter. Secondly, it's deliberate. It's purposeful. So remember John chapter 3, verse 16 from the previous chapter, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the world which describes rebellious human beings did not just refer, did not just center on the Jews, it, it, it included far beyond that. God's love captures the Samaritans. God's love captures us too, the Gentiles. And so John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria, and upon reaching a town called Sychar, Jesus sat by Jacob's well. He sat by Jacob's well. Now, if we are familiar with Old Testament narratives, a lot of interesting things always happen by the well. So you're familiar with the plot? Man arrives at the well, then women come to fetch water, and then conversation ensues with the result that the stranger gets invited to come over and stay in the village. So for example, we read of Abraham, how Abraham's servant, Genesis chapter 24, was on a mission to find a wife for his master, Isaac. So Abraham's servant stood by the well and then he prayed. And then what happened after he prayed? Just about evening time, Abraham, uh, Rebecca and other women came to draw water and a conversation occurs. And the servant was then extended hospitality and welcome to stay overnight. Same thing with Moses, Exodus chapter two. He goes to Midian and he sits by the well and the daughters of the priests in Midian, they came. And then Moses helps the women with the water and the father invites Moses to stay. And so those are the meetings at the well in the Old Testament. And those well meetings always end in a marriage. That's why there's a suggestion that we should probably dig a well in church and uh, maybe for such meetings to happen. By the way, is that even legal? Are we allowed to dig a well? Yeah. So when John tells us that Jesus sat by the well, we could have expected women coming to fetch water. But we don't. We don't. Because John tells us it was about the sixth hour. It was high noon. And no, they won't be coming until sunset, but something unexpected happens. A lone woman, not a group of women, but a lone woman came to the well. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? You know, that request, it was unthinkable. It was horrific, taboo, because Jews, they do not share utensils with Samaritans, more so with a Samaritan woman, which is why the woman replied in shock and even in scorn, saying, how is it, slide comes up, that you, a Jew, asks for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And there's an explanation that Jews did not have dealings with Samaritans. And so this woman reminds Jesus uh, of the social norms. 
She reminds Jesus of the racial boundaries. She reminds Jesus of the Jews' racial discrimination. You know what Jesus does? Jesus challenges social norms. And so the Lord asks for a drink and engages in a conversation with her. And the Lord offers her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so friends, here it is again, Jesus with his classic enigmatic replies. He asks for a drink only to tell the woman, well, what do you know? I have got the better drink. And his drink is called living water. And so Jesus offers the woman living water. And so what's living water? Now today, if you go buy a bottled water, your water is either mineral water, I mean from spring water, or distilled water. Which one do you prefer? Mineral water or distilled water? Now in those days, drinking water was either sourced from a cistern or spring. It is either dead, stagnant, well water, or living, moving spring water. And scholars tell us that they do not have rivers or streams in Sikar. No springs, no living water. And so when Jesus offered living water, the woman took it to mean that's, that is water that's far better than what is available. Incredible. And so she responds and tells Jesus, Sir, uh, that's unbelievable. You have nothing to draw water with. And she tells him, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? Paraphrasing, he tells, she tells Jesus, I don't see your tools to dig up your well. Yeah? And you don't even have a bucket, sir. But you know what? We, we've got Father Jacob's well here. That is what the woman is saying. But Jesus, he challenges the woman's pride in Jacob's lineage. You see, Jacob bought a piece of land in Shechem in Sikar, and he had dug a well too, which has provided water for the residents. Now Jacob's well, interestingly, was never mentioned in the Old Testament narrative, meaning to say that it's not that important. But Jacob's well here, one could say, has been presented to be important to the Samaritans. One could say that Jacob's well here is a heritage site that the woman prides herself with. Jacob gave us this well. He drank from, him, from it himself. But you see, Jesus is offering a better drink. It's far better than Jacob's water. Jesus said to her, slide. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so now in the style, the usual style of Jesus' enigmatic replies, now we know the phrase living water, it meant something else than just 
moving, bubbly, fresh water. Because we've already seen in chapter 2 how Jesus used water to reveal himself. So in chapter 2, he turned water that, were, that was in jars into wine. And then in chapter 3, he told Nicodemus that one must be born of water and the Spirit. And so when he speaks of living water, Jesus is not talking about untapped sources of fresh water. That was what the woman uh, understood. That's why she replied and said, sir, give me this water, you know, so that I don't have to be, uh, I don't need, I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The water that Jesus offers, however, is not natural water that we need for hydration. The water that Jesus offers, rather, is metaphorical. It refers to God and his character and everything good and satisfying that one gets from the knowledge and salvation that is found in God. So consider some Old Testament passage, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. The prophet says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God is the source of living waters, whom sadly the people rejected. But now Jesus comes to offer that living water which man so badly needed, which man so badly thirsted for. So the prophet Isaiah spoke of the day of salvation, also using water metaphor. Next slide. And Isaiah the prophet says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Here's another one, an invitation. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And that same chapter in chapter 55 speaks of the day when God calls people from all nations, calling them to repentance, calling them to abandon their wicked ways. And in turn, God is going to pardon them and show mercy to them. Now, it is unlikely that the Samaritan woman has the slightest idea of the water metaphor because scholars tell us that the scriptures Samaritans hold on to are only the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of Moses. And so when Jesus talked about living water, she still thinks that Jesus is speaking about natural water that quenches natural thirst. That's why she said, give me this water so that I don't have to keep coming here to draw water. She has yet to fully understand Jesus and his offer. But that's all right, because we, all of us, we have varying grasps and knowledge of God. We have varying grasps of his will and his ways. But what's important is for us to act on what we have come to know of God. And so the woman has yet to grasp fully what Jesus has to offer, it's not the natural water that she desires, but it's the living water that she badly needs. See, the woman 
She asks for water because she wants a stopgap measure for her immediate problem of having to draw water alone in the middle of the day. But Jesus, Jesus Christ, he did not come for a stopgap temporary solutions for you and I. He came to offer a lasting solution to quench our spiritual thirst once and for all. And that is what we all truly needed. Which is why Jesus brings the woman's husband into the discussion. And he tells her, go, call your husband and come back. And she replied, I have no husband. Now, by the way, the common plot of the well narratives is that the women who come to draw water are all virgins. They're very single. But this woman who claimed to be single was far from being single. Jesus said, you are right. You know, when you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands. And the man now, and the man you now have is not your husband. You could almost hear the pin drop, or maybe the bucket drop. Because it doesn't mean that she's been widowed five times, but that she's been through five failed relationships and not learned her lesson and currently living in sin. No wonder she comes to the well at midday. It is to dodge other women who might scorn her, shame her, if not attack her for being promiscuous, for being a threat to people's marriages. You know, I think it's not far-fetched to suggest that this Samaritan woman must be very beautiful because her charm attracted five previous relationships, all that did not last. And so, yes, she may be beautiful, she may be attractive, but she is in bad need, needed badly, of a lasting, redeeming relationship. And so what can we know about Jesus here? Well, Jesus, he knows the hearts of men. He knows everything about this woman. You see, PDPA doesn't work with Jesus. It's ineffective to Jesus. Jesus brings up a sore point in the woman's life, her shameful past and her present fling. Why? Because Jesus wants to challenge, slide comes up, the woman's dependency on unfaithful men. See, the woman, this woman worshipped the idol of relationships. So men after men, she brought upon herself the destruction and pain of being taken advantage of. And then when marriages failed, she tried cohabitation. Jesus challenges her dependency on unfaithful men by bringing up her immoral living. You know, remember how John the Baptist described Jesus? He said Jesus is the bridegroom. Remember that? With that in mind, could this meeting at the well point to the woman's need 
for a real, lasting, redeeming relationship that can only be found in Jesus. Well, the woman could have taken offense at Jesus' expose, and she could have walked away, but she did not. She continued the conversation by cleverly changing the topic. And she says, like, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, friends, this is a long-standing argument between the Jews and Samaritans. The argument where God's temple must be built. Because the Samaritans recognized only the five books of Moses as scripture, they read that uh, the temple decided by God must be the one on Mount Gerizim. The Jews, on the other hand, recognized uh, Jerusalem to be the place God decided where the temple must be built because of God's instruction to David through Nathan the prophet. Now, how does Jesus respond? Slide. Well, Jesus challenges security in temple. And so to the question, whose temple site is legit? Is it the one in Jerusalem? Or is it the one in Mount Gerizim? Well, Jesus just says, uh, take it from us, the Jews, because we know better. And Jesus tells her, here's some inside info. Jerusalem or Gerizim? It ain't going to matter no more. Why? Because both worship sites are on borrowed time. They are soon to become obsolete. And so it's futile to argue which is the legitimate temple. No, it's a little bit like arguing whether Safari is the better browser than Chrome. With chat GPT, it's not important argument anymore. So why won't Gerizim or Zion matter anymore? Because now that the Son of God has come, these worship sites shall soon be phased out. Slide. A time is coming and has now come, Jesus says, meaning it's, not, meaning it's now right at our doorsteps, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So what is meant by the phrase in spirit and truth? Well, the scholar D.A. Carson explains in simple terms, in spirit and truth, they are two inseparable characteristics of worship. Essentially God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in personal knowledge of and in conformity to God's Son, the Word made flesh, the one who is God's truth. Because devoid of these, the worship that we offer God is false worship. It is ignorant worship. And so with that, the Samaritan woman, after hearing that, she decided it best to leave it to the Messiah to explain all things and have the final say. So she said, well, when the Messiah comes, He'll tell us all things. But Jesus declared to you, I who speak to you am he. 
revealing himself to be the Christ. This was when the mic dropped after Jesus says, I am he. Jesus challenges the woman's limited idea of the Messiah by telling her that yours truly is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Now, friends, in all the challenges that Jesus presented to the woman, beginning with the social norms of dealing with the Samaritan and conversing with the woman, to the pride, to the challenge of her pride in Jacobian lineage, to the challenge of her dependency on unfaithful men, to the challenge which is the, the, the place of worship, challenge of her security in the temple, and her people's weight on their idea of their Messiah, in all those challenges that Jesus made, you know what he did? He brings in a replacement. He brings in a replacement. Firstly, he breaks social boundaries after challenging social norms. He breaks racial boundaries. Why? Because the gospel is going to be proclaimed from Judea to Samaria and to you and I, the ends of the earth. Jesus replaces the water from Jacob's well with living water. He replaces the adulterous man in the woman's life by offering her a redeeming, lasting relationship. He replaces the temple. Why? Because he is going to be the access to God. And he replaces her idea about the Messiah by saying that he is the Messiah, not only of the Jews, but both the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus challenges what you and I hold on to and shows you and I that he is the answer, the one whom we really need. So the woman left when Jesus' disciples arrived, but uh, she left a changed woman. And uh, what was the trigger? that uh, caused that change. What was the trigger? Well, we hear it from the confession of the woman to her people. She goes back to town and tells her people, he told me everything I ever did. The man knew everything I ever did. Why? Because Jesus knows the heart of men and women which means he knew everything I ever did, all those lies, all those coveting, all those seductions, all those cover-ups, all those ongoing affairs. He knew everything I ever did, said the woman. He knew everything I ever did, and yet he spoke to me at length at the well, and he offered me living water. You know, no sensible man will want to take a woman who's had five marriages. Five marriages and one ongoing affair. Only Jesus, the bridegroom, will. And he offers the woman the gift of God. 
living water that satisfies, eternal life. And so if Jesus offers this to this woman, will he not offer the same to you? So has Jesus told you everything you ever did? Well, he did to me, summer camp of 1988, when my group leader explained what sin is. What sin is? It is falling short of the glory of God. It is choosing one's old way that leads to death in the end. Sin was everything that I ever did. God knew everything that I ever did. And yet, he offered me forgiveness, salvation, new life in Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom who would take me despite everything that I ever did. So how did this, uh, did this woman's story end? Well, if you uh, remember Nicodemus's night visit to Jesus from the previous chapter, you should have noted that there's an intended contrast between Nick and the woman here. Nicodemus, he came Jesus in the dark of the night. This woman came to Jesus during the brightest of the day. And so one in darkness while the other coming to light. There's meaning behind that. Nicodemus was a religious man. I mean, he was a Pharisee. This woman, irreligious, living in sin. Nicodemus disappeared from the story after the hard explanations of Jesus. This woman did not. She left her water jar, meaning she dropped everything, whatever she was doing, and uh, maybe, hold a sec, I'll come back. She went back to town and told everybody to come and meet the man, the man who knew everything she ever did. You know, one could say it was a brief and yet powerful conversion testimony. She simply said, hey guys, meet the man who told me everything I've done. He must be the Messiah. You know, if our baptisms testimonies were that short, we would have ended early, right? This was a short and yet powerful conversion testimony, telling us that words need not be plenty. After all, because action speaks. The people see your changed life, and they wanted you to point them to the one who has changed you. And like the happy, well stories that we've heard in the Old Testament, this one ended in the same way. The people welcomed Jesus and invited him to stay with them. To the result that many believed in Jesus, and then they proclaimed that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, by the way, before I end, there's one more contrast between Nicodemus and the uh, Samaritan woman. What is that? Well, we know the Pharisee's name, Nicodemus. But we were not told the woman's thing. Did you notice that? 
could it be because the former Nicodemus was an important figure, while the latter, the woman, was simply a commoner? Or perhaps the writer deliberately left her anonymous and spare her the shame associated with her past. Tells us that when Jesus points to you, tells you everything that you've ever done, it is never to shame you, but it is to save you and offer you living water that wells up in eternal life. Let us pray. Lord, we give thanks that though undeserved we are, that though everything that we've ever did, we've ever done, to choose our own way and to rebel against you, in your goodness and mercy and love, you gave us Jesus Christ so that we will not perish but come to eternal life through your Son. And so I pray that if any of us here, Spirit of God has spoken to them through your word today, I ask, O oh Lord, that you draw them near to you, enable them to cry out to you and say to you, quench my thirst, O oh Lord. Redeem me from my sins. Save me and give me living water. I pray this in Jesus' name.